Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. With The Bachelor wrapping up, be sure to check out The Bachelor Party Podcast with Juliet Littman for all your news and coverage, as well as interviews with former contestants, producers, and personalities from Bachelor Nation. Also, with opening day right around the corner, the MLB Show podcast is back, covering Bryce Harper and Manny Machado's recent signings and much more. You can subscribe to both on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to follow our NFL team for full coverage of the NFL Combine and pre-draft analysis on TheRinger.com. David, the reporter Michael Cruz tweeted this week, that a Columbia Journalism Review poll revealed that 60% of respondents, 54% of Democrats, and 70% of Republicans believe reporters get paid by their sources, sometimes or very often. 60% of people believe reporters get paid by their sources. What I want to know is, what else do 60% of people believe about journalists that is so clearly ridiculous? Uh, that they, uh, that they, what, that they pick their nose and live in their parents' basement? Is that, that does they that make count? a lot of money? That they make yeah, a living they, wage? They go, oh, I guess apparently they make, yeah, if you're, if we're going off the 60% think they're getting paid by their sources, I guess they must think they're, they're, they're rich. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, you know, 60% probably think that most journalists are like, you know, that they're on TV most of the time because that's how I'm sure a lot of people encounter it. They certainly think that 60% and, and it's definitely not 60, but it's not zeros. They probably think that 60% hang out in like, laugh-filled bullpens with their boss sipping a ju- like a venti iced coffee just like cracking wise with them. I'm just guessing this because yeah. if you think 60% of journalists are paid by their sources, you must be get a lot of your journalism from TMZ. But yeah, it, I cannot even, I don't even want to think what those 60% believe. We are 60% listenable and 40% listenable <laughs> if you were asleep or maybe working out or just comatose. This is the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Oh, man. The Press Box is the media podcast where you always publish your Stormy Daniels story immediately. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here again with three topics for your pleasure and amusement. First, David, we'll talk about the pretty shocking news that color analyst Jason Witten has left Monday Night Football to return to the Dallas Cowboys. What is the standing of Monday Night Football in the culture in 2019? Second, the New Yorker's Jane Mayer has dropped an anvil of a story on Fox News. Our votes for the most interesting tidbits about Stormy Daniels and more. And finally, David, we're going to backtrack to that Bob Kraft massage parlor story. Specifically, let's talk about it as a piece of journalism, how it was covered and how it changed the way reporters can write about Kraft's extracurricular life, plus a notebook dump and the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But David, let's start with Monday Night Football. Thursday morning, I'm going to set a scene for you. One bright morning in February, I looked at my phone and got a text. It was from Sean Fennessy, editor of The Ringer. As you know, David, when you get the Fennessy text, it's it's important. This is like the sports media bat signal shining over Gotham City at that point. <laughs> the news, of course, was that Jason Witten, who was the impossibly inspiring Cowboys tight end, had left and had once left for Monday Night Football, is once again an impossibly inspiring Cowboys tight end. And thus ends a year in which Witten was often tongue-tied and probably, at least in the broadcast booth part of sports media, the favorite target of critics and media Twitter. So give me your sports guy, (laughs) but not sports media guy take on this. What did you make of the Jason Witten news? I was sort of perplexed by it. I feel like the coverage alighted, I think, some of the very most basic questions that I had about it. Like, can he still play football? Um, (laughs) That's important. And uh, can he still run? Can he? Yeah. Can he? I mean, I don't know. I mean, it didn't seem like running was that important as last season, but he did seem to be uh, on the, you know, downside. And then, you know, it's just like anything else when the the story, I watched the story break on ESPN and it was, and it was, you know, they gave it a little bit of ironic fanfare to just to sort of, I mean, I think it was, I don't think they were being dishonest or anything, but they certainly made it seem like a bigger deal than in my mind it really was. Um, I guess it is a huge deal when the play, when the when the you know esteemed or not esteemed but famous um, color guy for from Monday Night Football decides after a year in the booth to go back to playing the game. Um, but yeah, I mean it was just you know the, the the presentation was was resplendent with just like hilarious turns of phrase about you know <laughs> there's the the Cowboys had a hole at the on the tight end spot and now ESPN has a has a hole in the broadcast booth or whatever. But the but. I think it's really interesting. I think it's an interesting, I mean, it, it makes, it It certainly, 
um, you know, puts a wrinkle in in his uh, you know Wikipedia page, and I'm I'm gonna be kind of excited to see where he goes on the field, um, you know. And it's been fun to get like the immediate postmortems of his broadcasting career, even though it was sort of you know in a, a very abrupt, very brief tenure in that in that genre. When you talk about ESPN, I figure if we were still in the back of the '90s Sports Center era. Remember when the anchors did those long, very writerly kind of intros and outros? Mm-hmm. I, I just, I just have, a, I just see like one of them sitting there going, "The novelist Thomas Wolfe said you can't go home again." Well, <laughs> on Thursday, Jason Witten announced. Dot, dot, dot. Um, so I was also surprised, and I was very surprised because almost a month to the day that Jason Witten announced he was coming to the Cowboys, I had sat down with him at the Super Bowl and talked all about how he was going to fix himself as a broadcaster. Uh-huh. And had this, you know, listen to him, and he did most of the talking, describe in incredible detail all the stuff he was going to do. Yeah. Uh, everything from watching tape, kind of in the manner of an athlete, like like how he'd watch tape as a tight end, to seeking out people like John Madden and Jeff Van Gundy to ask them how to be a better broadcaster and maybe watch mm-hmm. his tape with them. And then he turns around and he's like, never mind, I'm going to play for the Cowboys. So that was wild. Um Jerry Jones, I noticed this was an athletic piece by Calvin Watkins uh, from the Combine this weekend. He said um, that Jerry Jones said this weekend that when he went to introduce Jason Witten at last year's ESPN Upfront, this is when they were unveiling the new Monday night team of Joe uh-huh. Tastorben, Booger, and, and Witten, um, that Jerry Jones at that moment felt like something wasn't right and that Witten wasn't ready to retire. <laughs> which is probably a bad sign if you're about to be on a national television broadcast. Um, I think, but I think the thing that's highlighted for me, and maybe I've been watching too much NFL combine is just like with actual football, football announcers, broadcasters broadcasting, you know, and, and networks like ESPN, what they're doing is essentially drafting raw tools. They're, they're looking at somebody and saying, we think you can be a broadcaster. Yeah. We don't have a ton of evidence this is the case. I know he did some, mm-hmm. you know, sample games with them and stuff like that, maybe one major sample game. But mostly it's like we're going to sit down across a table and talk to you. And if you seem like the kind of guy who can talk on television, then yeah. we're going to hire you. And that's it. And they're guessing as much as the NFL teams are guessing maybe even more in this case because Jason Witten had not been like a college broadcaster. He was doing a totally different job. But they're guessing as much as the teams are guessing about who's going to be good. Yeah, and there's not, I mean, it's not like there's a tradition of like a farm system, at least for for these kind of big name color guys. I guess that the, I guess in part of it is just the reputation that you come in with when you're someone like Jason Witten, right? You get signed, you get paid a lot of money. It's like to make, to, to carry on the football parallel it's like you know drafting a first round quarterback where you kind of feel obligated to play him uh regardless of whether or not they're they're ready to play and then especially when you see you know if you're the if you're the Arizona Cardinals and you see that the the Jets are starting Sam Darnold then you feel a little bit pressure to start to see you know see what Josh Rosen has your fans are clamoring for it and and I and I'm sure there was some of that with the Jason Witten Tony Romo parallel in in the broadcasting world, but yeah, I mean, it, you you it is it is you just take it on faith that these that they can be good at what they do, and uh, it's kind of wild that that Monday Night Football, which is certainly not the franchise it was, you know, once upon a time, but that that would be a place for someone to have a first job. Yeah, and 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 speaking of which, by the way, just the fact that it's so subtle, the difference of what makes you a good broadcaster versus not a not as good broadcaster. Like you, you mentioned Romo, the Romo comparison, which I've already beaten mm-hmm. into the ground. So let's beat it into the ground some more. But Do it. it is a small thing that you're able to, in that 10 or 12 seconds, you know, talk about football intelligently and just basically get the words out of your mouth, right? Onto mm-hmm. television. And that's that seems so, that seems like a kind of non-insight, but that's actually the same thing it is with writing. How many writers do you know who are really funny and really smart when you talk to them over a cup of coffee. And then when they sit down on the page, it just doesn't come out quite as well. It's just yeah. not quite as eloquent or certain characteristics. And then you talk to other people who are completely tongue tied and they sit down and they're just great. And the difference between Romo and Witten, I think, um, you know, I'm sure there's some natural talent involved, but it's when Romo sits down in front of the mic, he knows what to do. And he just has a sense of here's what I'm going to say. And here's how I can say it 
cogently and and in in a funny way and predict plays and Witten in year one anyway just never got to that point. Yeah, it's just funny. You're not going to believe this, but I have a uh, professional wrestling oh, um, corollary here. Please. There's there's a, you'll hear from a lot of uh, you, you you hear sometimes about wrestling guy about you know potential prospective professional wrestlers that someone has all the charisma in the world and they have when they're talking in the in the locker room, they have everybody wrapped. Nobody can turn away, but then they get in the ring and you hand them a microphone and it's just not there. You know, it's, it's there's, there's some of that, I think with these guys too. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I know you wrote about uh, the Witten Romo comparison in your piece. Um, and a lot of, and a couple of the points that you made um, were also echoed or, 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 you know, Adam Schefter said the same thing on ESPN. Going back to the ESPN presentation, it was so bizarre that he, when, when they announced it, it just seemed like a sort of vague media story to me. But then Schefter was there on the hotline talking about how the criticism that he got, that, I mean, that, that Witten got as the, at, you know, on Monday Night Football is what drove him back to playing uh, and saying that he never got criticism playing t- playing tight end which you and you you hit on some of that in your piece too yeah and say and, and also said that the comparison to Romo getting so much praise um while he was getting kind of dogged uh was hard for him to deal with is that I mean did did did, did you guys talk about that yeah a little and I, I I would just say and I didn't hear the I didn't hear the Schefter thing so I'm just 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 going off what you said there but he I've had a lot of broadcasters sit down and tell me and spell out in no uncertain terms, how unfairly they're being treated by Twitter oh, and yeah. how pissed off they are. That's like a pretty common thing if you're a famous sports broadcaster. Jason Witten was on the way low into that and pissed off is not a word I would use. Hurt is not a word I would use. I'd almost mm-hmm. just more use like he was just kind of looking at all this stuff going, oh, wow, people are really mad at me for the first time in my career. Uh, and he was also looking at all that stuff going, which which of this stuff is just sort of weird hate and which of this stuff can I actually use to be good in year two? I just, I got a real, you know, he was more concerned about being better than he was about writing the wrongs of Twitter. So I didn't get the sense he was bothered at some spiritual level. To the Romo thing, I think there is, I think Romo was so good that, you know, perhaps there's a part of Jason Witten that goes, you know what? I'm I'm probably never going to touch the sky in broadcasting quite like that. So if I see my ceiling and my ceiling is like three floors under what Tony Romo's ceiling is, then maybe I should just go play football. But I just I think the biggest thing is he just wanted to play football. I don't think anything that happened to him in broadcasting, other than not being great generally his first year, I don't think that anything that happened to him in broadcasting drove him back to football. I think he wanted to play football again. Yeah, was there a, was there a standing offer from the Cowboys? Is that I I missed this that that piece of the story too. Was there a standing offer or a new offer that he decided to take? I mean, what, what was there? Was it was there some sort of urgency, or did he just change his mind in a hurry? So a lot of data points. One, Jerry saying, you know, he didn't think Witten was really ready to retire, and maybe got mm-hmm. kind of talked into it because look, it's Monday Night Football; it's once in a lifetime. He talked to the Cowboys at one point last year about coming back during the season. Uh, when the Cowboys started winning all those games, we're clearly going to make the playoffs. And mm-hmm. then he apparently talked to Jason Garrett, you know, a couple of times this year after the season was over. So I think he sort of had those longings. And one thing is, remember when, remember the 2017 NFL season, and more specifically the 2017 Cowboys season, was uniquely terrible. This is yeah. kneeling. This is Jerry Jones's failed coup against Roger Goodell. This is, you know, the Zeke Elliott domestic violence saga. And so Jason Witten walking away from that team is probably different than walking away, watching from the broadcast booth that that team goes on that huge run last year and him saying, boy, this would be fun to be a part of. Um, So I think that's got to be part of it, too. I mean, just normally, like what organization do you want to go back to that one at the end of 2017 or the one that, you know, beat Seattle in the playoffs last year and actually looks pretty good. The other thing I'd like to add to this, David, is the one thing, part of this that wasn't a surprise is that something crazy happened behind the scenes of Monday Night Football. This is our entire life. This mm-hmm. is before we started paying attention. This is even before we were born. Monday Night Football has been, it's like a mini version of Saturday Night Live where there's the stuff on the screen. and then. But what's more interesting is everything, all the crazy stuff that's happening behind the scenes. The short, the short version would be Keith Jackson was the play-by-play guy in Monday Night Football year one gone after one year. 
Don yeah. Meredith, part of the greatest booth ever there, walked away for a few years in a huff. They had OJ as an announcer, which was terrible. They had Joe Namath as an announcer, which was terrible. Boomer Esiason and Al Michaels hated each other and had to split up, which is what <laughs> got us Dennis Miller in the booth of Monday Night Football very famously. They sort of re-ran the Dennis Miller thing with Tony Kornheiser a few years later. We had seemingly a hundred seasons of Mr. Spider Y Banana after that, you know, just would never stopped. And now you have three guys who are pretty drama free, loyal soldiers, good employee guys in Tessator, McFarland and Witten. And there is still drama behind the scenes of Monday Night Football. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it has never stopped ever. And I think part of the reason for that and, and this kind of gets to why they hired Witten in the first place, which is another interesting question, is that Monday Night Football has been sort of undergoing this three-decade identity crisis. Yeah. Since the beginning of like, what are we now? We know back in the 70s, we were. We're the thing that brought football to prime time. We combined football and showbiz, right? We had mm -hmm. Howard Cassell being kind of the moral authority. Once they got out of that, to me, it's been the same thing every couple of years, which is what is Monday night football in fill in the blank year? Yeah. And I think when they hired Witten, they looked at apparently 12 people. Uh, Kurt Warner, who now does a radio version, gave a really good audition. But I think they looked at that and said, we don't want to sound like the Fox number two game or the Fox mm -hmm. number three game. We want to be different because this is Monday night football. It has to be different. It has to take chances. It has to roll the dice. So what do they do? They go, pull Jason Witten out of the Dallas Cowboys. But that just all goes back to Monday night and the people who produce it trying to figure out what are we now? Where yeah. do we fit in? And this is just merely the latest iteration of that. Yeah, I mean, and on some level, they would be fine if they were just the CBSB game. You know, I mean, they, they, there's not a, there's not a, you know, dra a drastic need for them to, for them to stand out from the crowd. Um, and but it's admirable that they want to. Um, at the same time, you know they're always going to get more. They're always going to get more media attention. They're always going to get more pressure. They're always going to get scrutinized more than another broadcast because they're just sort of this institution. They're this sort of like totem of what you know of of how we watch football and how we how we've watched it over the years. That's just like and, SNL, uh, you know, right? It, it just just like it SNL, means yeah, or like, more than it actually is now because it's sure. just such or, a big brand. Or like you remember when like Meet the Press went through the hosting controversy mm -hmm. a few years ago, or not controversy, but all the kind of ups and downs of who was going to be the post-Russert chair of, of Meet the Press. Um, it doesn't matter how few people are actually watching this show, right? I mean, it's just it just matters what the show once meant to us and meant to the people who are writing about it and thinking about it. Yeah, I, I just think that at the at the same time, it it doesn't matter that that Monday Night Football means less now than it did once upon a time, as long as ESPN is holding on to that history and they want to hold on to that history because that's the most meaningful part of the broadcast, right? I mean, it's not it's certainly not the games that they're getting anymore. Um, and I think so, that's why you kind of can't be the CBSB game because right. nobody watches the CBSB game. <laughs> yeah. CBSB game is going to Cincinnati and you know the fans of the Jets. They're not, it's not a Nash, it's a Nash, not a national game. So, I mean, my, my whole thing is any night game in the NFL and really in college too, should be fun night. It should be different. It should feel looser. I actually thought what Joe Buck and Troy Aikman did kind of doing that lounge act last year during Thursday night football, mm -hmm. where they're just kind of looser and funnier yep. and a little less serious than they were on Sunday afternoon. That was the right idea. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it just should feel like fun night. Like it's, you know, hey, we got his money. It's an extra, it's extra football. And, you know, again, like somebody thought that and hired Dennis Miller. Somebody did th thought that and hired Tony Kornheiser. So this is, again, this is the variation. We're, <laughs> we're going through this thing. We are not an absolute have to watch NFL broadcast like we were in 1975. But right. how do we artistically differentiate ourselves and make, make ourselves stand out from the pack as kind of the second national night game of the week? It's just a really interesting puzzle. Yeah, I think that, that, you know, hiring the comedian and hiring the whatever you consider Kornheiser, I mean, part of that is just looking at, is just trying to break what made John Madden so great down into particles and just sort of like, and, and trying to reproduce that, you know, piece by piece. And, you know, that's just a mugs game, right? I mean, you you, you can't, you can't recreate magic uh, and, and it's going to be interesting to see where they go next. Do you have any ideas or thoughts about what's, what's next for the, for Monday night? I think. 
Tessitore and McFarland together is the simplest solution. But I'd be shocked if they don't call Peyton Manning. I'd be absolutely shocked. And I'd be, I'd be shocked if they don't just spend some time thinking about what they're going to do. Because they have time. There's no, we don't need, nobody needs an answer on this for, you know, a few weeks or a month or whatever. And I just think at some point, I think they know they could roll out Tessator and Booger and be fine. Mm-hmm. And now it's sort of like, but what else is out there? What things do we need to think about? So I guess I'd make them the betting favorite just because that's the simplest possible solution. All right, David, now it's time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. David, did you see that conservative gadfly Jacob Wool was permanently <laughs> banned from Twitter after he revealed to USA Today that he was going to create fake social media accounts to try to monkey with the 2020 election? Yes, I did. If that is your plan, do not reveal it to USA Today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> of all places, right? That's everybody. Everybody in every airport is going to see that. Um, it was an overworked Twitter joke to, of course, go back to the hipster coffee shop bit. <laughs> uh, at the hipster coffee shop, looking at my phone, it tells me Jacob Wool has been suspended. People are crying, pouring out their lattes for a real one. That was <laughs> one I liked. Another one was I told everyone in this hipster coffee shop downtown that Jacob Wool's account was suspended, and they all said, "Who the hell is that?" Uh, thanks to <laughs> Eric Felke for that one. <laughs> David, important news from the Baseball Hot Stove League. Last Tuesday, someone tweeted that the ownership of the San Francisco Giants wanted to offer Bryce Harper a long-term contract contra the wishes of the Giants president of baseball operations. Now, this is a standard baseball rumor, except that the source tweeting the story was Smash Mouth. <laughs> yeah. So Smash Mouth is Woj now. Or maybe Jeff Passan. <laughs> he is Smash, Smash Mouth has got, has got the scoop. It was an overworked Twitter joke to preface this rumor by writing, somebody once told me, dot, dot. <laughs> and somebody did the whole thing, by the way, which is kind of impressive. Bryce Harper told Zaidi, I want $300 million and change. He was looking kind of dumb because the owners like the sum of his age, stats, fame, and fielding range. Not that. That's not bad. <laughs> not bad. Not bad. Not bad. Not good, but not bad. Uh, and finally, David, a tweet last Thursday from BuzzFeed. This got a lot of attention. Old Navy and the Gap are separating. This is a, <laughs> what? A fundamentally, I miss this news. Fundamentally a business story, right? But Old Navy wow. and the Gap are separating. It was an overworked Twitter joke uh, to say, someone tell Baby Gap it's not their fault. <laughs> oh. hey, thanks That's to Paul Boston for that one. It was really great stuff. Fantastic work. All right, David. Topic number two. Jane Mayer and Fox News. Today in media Twitter, you may have noticed a big story in the New Yorker for mayor about Fox News. Um, and by the way, dear media Twitter, when when a story like this comes out, you you don't need to just tweet Jane Mayer is the goat. Just just tell us, <laughs> pull out a fact uh, from the story that might be interesting. Tell us whether you like the story, what you liked about it specifically. We we did. Jane Mayer is the goat. I just love that. You know, <laughs> thanks. Um. So the big revelations were, I think in order, that a Fox.com, the FoxNews.com reporter named Diane Falzone, and here I'm quoting from Mayer, obtained mm-hmm. proof that Trump had engaged in a sexual relationship in, 20, in 2006 with Stormy Daniels. Falzone's story kept being passed off from one editor to the next. Falzone told colleagues that a uh, Fox News executive said her good reporting kiddo, but Rupert wants Donald Trump to win, so just let it go. Mm. Later, we learn uh, Falzone also discovered that the National Enquirer, in partnership with Trump, had made a catch-and-kill deal with Daniels. Falzone pitched that story to Fox, too, but it went nowhere until the Wall Street Journal broke the story a year after Trump became president. What was your first reaction to the to that revelation and, and the other stuff that Mayer wrote about with Fox? First of all, this is, I mean, this is a fantastic piece. Uh, and I assume most people listening to this have read it or have it, you know, <laughs> have saved consumed their, it in the Twitter yeah, way. Have it printed out and stuck in their back pocket or saved the Insta paper or this tab will be open for the next two weeks, one of mm-hmm. those things. And to that end, I mean, it's, I, I had literally forgotten the Diana Falzone, um, Stormy Daniels portion of the story by the time I got to it again in the piece. I, you know, I read it, excerpted on blogs and whatnot. And when I finally got to the piece, Half of the way through this, however many thousand word, just tidal wave, uh, it it kind of struck again. But specifically to that, I mean, listen, uh, I'm not going to say anything no one said before, but you know, in another age, 
that we're not that far removed from and another administration, that story alone would just be earth shattering for Fox News, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, just for that to just be acceptable or to be shoulder shruggable, I think sort of explains the rest of the piece in a certain way, either through, you know, the changes, the changes that Trump has brought about and the way that we um, sort of uh, consume national news media or just in the way that, that Fox News has has shifted in the way that they present it. And I think that the, the point that the piece makes really uh, intelligently is that those two ideas are, you know, interwoven uh, inextricably. Um, but wow. I mean, just to, the idea that, I mean, the chief attacks on CNN and to a lesser extent MSNBC are conspiracy theory versions of this same thing, right? I mean, they don't really <laughs> yes. have truth to back it up. Uh, and And the fact that this is just like, laid out uh, and presented as as absolute truth and I don't think has been refuted at all um, is is pretty incredible and it's not even just the it's not even just that they refused to publish this story um, it's that they did their own little catch and kill with it right I mean that they they managed for the story to not this isn't a situation like a um, like a Ronan Farrow thing where I was like oh well my boss doesn't want to publish it so I will quit and find another home for the piece um it's uh, the piece i mean the story did not end up anywhere else for a full year uh, right. you know didn't even leak to somewhere else and then diana felzone herself seems to have uh or was demoted um she says suspiciously and then and then you know filed suit or something and now has a you know is is legally bound to not discuss her employment at fox news um presumably after some sort of uh settlement fee um it's just the whole thing is just sort of wild, right? It is totally wild. And a hallmark of Trumpism is for him to charge, throw out a conspiracy theory that is actually true about him. And mm -hmm. that's going all the way back to the, the campaign against Hillary Clinton. And in this case, true about the, uh, as Mayor puts it in the piece, the state TV network. After underlining, and I'm glad you did, just how incredible those revelations are, can I then steer us into a boring journalism point? Which is... please. I admire the absolute hunk of long-form granite that this story was. I admire how the New Yorker is still working in the hunk of long-form granite mode in terms of storytelling. I'm glad it exists. I enjoyed reading mm -hmm. this story. Is it not a little amazing to you that when you got that when they got this revelation, they weren't just like, if this is confirmed, this needs to be up on the website in like two minutes before yeah. Gabe Sherman or Brian Stelter or one of these other guys or Jim Rutenberg or somebody nosing around figures this out mm -hmm. because we're going to, we have this explosive network rocking out, you know, piece of information and we're going to put it in this again, very well told story. But, but the idea that Trump, that Fox is Trump TV and state TV at this point is a pretty well known mm -hmm. and, you know, the idea we're going to bring in academics to tell us all that stuff. We, I think most people paying attention kind of get that point, but they are dedicated to the thing. And I, and I actually, when I was reading, it, I was like, Oh wow, <laughs> this is, you know, they're still devoted to that form of storytelling. What do you make of that? Well, I mean, and implicit in, in your, what you just said is, I mean, you're talking about when they uncovered this news, if it be it three months ago or six months ago or whenever. Yeah. Anytime, anytime, but literally this morning. The, yeah, they should have rushed this to the press. And I agree with that. I think there's another question, uh, a similar question that needs to be asked, which is today when you publish this thing, is there not some sort of motivation to present, as the New York Times did, a short form version or a blog post version of the revelations that are, that are in this bigger piece? Because as great as this piece was and as necessary as this piece was, because, as I said, it you have to do the work to make the case, right? Just to, just to you know, you can publish the one story but to, to but to assemble the broader argument is a sort of uh, you know monolithic endeavor and and Jane Mayer and the New Yorker I mean this is a story that people I'm sure have have tossed around in so many editorial board meetings where they're like yeah well we should write that piece but it has to be done right you know it has to be it has to be comprehensive it has to be everything and that's something it's really impressive that Jane Mayer and the New Yorker pulled it off here but just to the the little news items like why are you why in 2019 would you forfeit traffic to all of the people you mentioned before who are going to publish little posts about it, all the news items about it, all of the 
the blogs, you know, the children of Gawker that are out there just like publishing paragraphs out of the story, you know, that I think that's a, that's an interesting question too, yeah. whether or not there's another way. And listen, by the way, the Ringer deals with this in a much much lighter form. You know, every day or we we ask ourselves, you know, when people excerpt something that Bill says in a podcast, like, should we have put that on a blog first? You know, I mean, it, it's it, this is a thing that every media outlet is dealing with. Right yeah. Now. And when and I don't I don't even think I think they should have done either one of those things. First of all, I think it takes an um, kind of a, an amazing amount of um, what's the what's the right word? Can we just is balls the right word? An amazing <laughs> man of balls to sit on a scoop like that. Yeah. Um, And, you know, that again. It's a devotion to a particular form of storytelling. It takes yes. an incredible amount of devotion to that form to sit on a scoop like that. You're right. It also takes a devotion to not just like have, here are the bullet points, here are the easy to link to bullet points from Jane Mayer's story. And it's it's a very 10 years ago form of journalism where one outlet publishes a very long, detailed, writerly thing, and then all the aggregators come and do their short, snackable version of it. And the New Yorker uh, has innovated in a lot of ways. Um, it has a, it has a kind of you know nice, readable, chippy website now. But it's just that is just really interesting to me. And when I read that, I was like, oh wow! Just imagine. And I don't know when she came up with that fact, but imagine sitting on that for days or weeks, and mm-hmm. and not rushing it out with that. A couple other notes from the story that I thought were interesting. Uh huh. One is a sense that um, when Murdoch was creating Fox News, this is around 1994, he had just. Uh, bought the rights to the NFL, which is, of course, something I'm interested in. And he tells somebody, he says, um, that he is, that he, the core viewers of Fox News would be football fans. And the aim, mm-hmm. that was the aim, he said, when he brought the NFL rights, what he was, and this is what person who he said it to, being quoted here, Reed Hunt, what he was really saying that he was going after a working class audience, he was going to carve out a base, what would become the Trump base. So Trump, so Murdoch, excuse me, <laughs> mixed him up there. Murdoch is saying that, I've got these NFL fans. Now I'm going to create a news network for NFL fans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the kind of things they're they're worked up about. Uh, the kind of fears and the kind of um, anxieties that they possess. I just thought that was fascinating because as somebody who's written a lot about him buying NFL rights, I never thought of that particular. I never heard that particular uh, sort of weigh in before. And just to fill in one tiny gap, Reed Hunt is, was at the time the chairman of the FCC. That's right. And and I believe that this this conversation took place over a fancy dinner that Murdoch invited Hunt to, um, which is not I'm not trying to imply any sort of malevolence or anything, but it's just I mean just the the circles that these folks travel in, you know, and the way that these and the places where these conversations take place. And I think that you know this is a I mean maybe a little maybe an obvious point, but that conversation I think is the first sequentially the first indication of um the sort of i don't even now i'm going to grasp at words callousness sort of moral ambivalence that led rupert murdoch to and fox news to the place where they are right now yeah i mean it sort of depends on where you date it with him you could date it to british newspapers australian newspapers i guess i should say from the very inception of fox news Mm -hmm. i mean it was it was built on a sort of smarmy moral ambivalence like it, it's not it, this is not it was not trying to be news network in any pristine version of the uh phrase it was pure murdoch it was exactly yeah. how he's conceived of everything he's ever done you know in terms mm-hmm. of newspapers and like i said on three continents at that point yep the other thing that stood out and this was from greta van Susteren. this is mayor writing about greta van Susteren. for greta van Susteren, a host on fox between 2002 and 2016 hannity's rally appearance you remember he appeared with Trump uh, on stage at the end of the 2016 midterms illustrates a difference at Fox since former Fox honcho Roger Ailes's departure. For all of Ailes's faults, Van Susteren argues, he exerted a modicum of restraint. She believes that Ailes would have insisted on at least some distance from President Trump, if only to preserve the appearance of journalistic respectability embodied in the motto Ailes devised for Fox, fair and balanced. A couple of times in the piece, that note comes up, not from Mayor, but from people she quotes. Can we just get rid of this strange new respect for Roger Ailes thing that is bubbling up, which is just, I mean, this idea, and I, <laughs> I remember reading this in a New York Times piece, and I think it was a Jim Rutenberg column too, a couple of months ago, this idea that, you know, boy, Fox has really gone off the rails since Roger Ailes left. Do you remember the Roger Ailes Fox? A <laughs> modicum of restraint? What what modicum was that? <laughs> and <laughs> first of all, if you also, if you read in the piece, Roger Ailes, the guy who would have allegedly built a wall between Fox News and President Trump, 
is the guy who, when he got cashiered from Fox News, went to help Trump prepare for the debate. And then when Trump was inevitably going to lose a presidential election, was going to help Trump start <laughs> Trump TV. So that's yeah. that's the guy that was going to protect you from becoming state TV. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is. This is another, I mean, and, and just, to, just to hone in on that for a second, this is another example of like a story that I'm sure would have been the focus of much, uh, much reportage in another administration. But there, but you remember even they teased Trump TV at the end of the campaign and everybody was saying, oh, man, I guess he, is he, is he making, is, is this, is this the exit strategy if he doesn't, you know, if and when he doesn't win? And they, and, and Jane Mayer pins that down in this piece, I think really well, but, it, but just to think that, you know, all these plans were in motion. I mean, between Trump and Roger Ailes to... St to start the nationalist opposition to Fox News, which is just sort of wild to think about that like now Fox News, <laughs> Fox Fox News Fox. is now the CNN. Yeah, I mean, to out Fox Fox, exactly. Yeah, I just, again, I just, I, I think it's, I think it's enough of a narrative to say that Fox News was a malignant force in American life. And then it became a malignant force that was aligned with the president of the United States. Mm -hmm. I think that's the narrative. It was not, there was this fair and balanced restrained Fox News and then, oh boy, Roger Ailes left and, you know, all the, and, and Sean Hannity became the big star and all the seatbelts went off. I don't think that's, I don't think that's what it is at all. Well, just, there's people at Fox, there's people at Fox News who were trying to kind of like uh, legitimize what they'd been doing post facto, right? I mean, it's, that's the, it's, 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 it's is presented as the argument of the piece, but I think it's, it's mostly from sources who would like to think that wasn't this bad in a previous era. Topic number three, David, someone on Twitter with the amazing handle of at Bent Kazemore, Bent Kazemore <laughs> tweets at us, why hasn't the ringer done more on Bob Kraft? Now, Bent, if I may, David and I can't speak for the ringer on this, but we can speak for the entire media. And what's interesting about the Bob Kraft story as journalism is that I think it was both, it both opened up this opportunity for all this reporting and it also threw everybody off balance at the same time. If you remember, David, on February 22nd, which was the day we learned that Kraft, who is, of course, the owner of the New England Patriots, was being charged with solicitation of prostitution by the Jupiter, Florida police. Mm -hmm. Everybody immediately turned to the jokes because yeah. we have a frame for famous guy sex scandals. We this yeah. is as a society, we know what to do with that. But then, oh, wait. The story was about human trafficking. And as one of the yeah. sheriffs involved in the case said, I know the story is about craft, but the bigger story in the moral universe is that these are trafficked women. These are women that are brought here from China under some kind of ruse, some promise of a job that never materialized because it was never there in the first place. And then everybody on media Twitter goes, uh-oh, uh, because not only is it harder to crack jokes about craft now, yeah. but it's also actually harder to report because the big reporting get now is not he did this and he's going to apologize or, or, you know, make a deal or whatever it is, but you've got to figure out, did Bob Kraft know about any of that stuff when mm -hmm. he allegedly did what he did? Yeah. And that just to me changed the whole tenor of the story right off the bat. Yeah, I think so. I think that you framed it exactly correctly. The fact that everybody went first to jokes and, and, you know, no one on this podcast is, is, uh, claiming to be above the fray, at least in, you know, where, where our minds went. Um, you know, this is just one of those weird, like, dinosaur uh, brain subjects that that it doesn't, you know, we haven't as a as a culture or whatever kind of grappled with the fact that when we talk about people going to massage parlors or make jokes or whatever, like, we are almost inherently talking about sex trafficking, mm -hmm. right? And and that the uh, and that and that the you know moral imperative is is uh, has a really specific focus that any sort of merrymaking totally elides, right? I mean, that we're, <laughs> that, that there's a, um, there is a real problem here and it's one that we, you know, that it's really easy to turn a blind eye to culturally, personally. And, you know, maybe this will be another moment where we can, you know, kind of right that wrong. I mean, just rectify the way that we think about those things. Yeah, it reminds me when people are going to prison, right? Especially men mm -hmm. going to prison and the sort of prison rape jokes joke yeah. industrial complex immediately starts and then everybody says you know what that's actually really 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 not funny and a really yeah. really really serious problem the um couple of notes off of this one was the adam schefter thing do we want to listen to adam schefter and what he said right after on espn right after uh we learned the news of the charges against Kraft? Mm -hmm. there are people down there in that area i'm told who say that this story is going to heat up 
and get a lot worse. And I don't mean involving Robert Kraft. I'm talking about with all the human trafficking that has gone on down there. I'm also told that Robert Kraft is not the biggest name involved down there in South Florida. And we'll see what police turn up in the report. A spokesman for one of the state attorneys later told Deadspin, nobody around here has any idea what he is referring to. Schefter then goes on WEI and says, what I have been told is that there are other people involved. There are other names that will come out in this particular investigation. We're talking about an area of South Florida, rich and famous South Florida. Lots of people live down there. Lots of people vacationing down there. We'll see how all this unfolds in the days and weeks to come. Some will be just regular people whose names we don't know, but there could be other names we do know. And that's how it was explained to me. So that potentially, (laughs) potentially huge news Mm -hmm. has not come to light yet. Not materialized, no. David, of course, you know that Barstool's Dave Portnoy decided this issue was way too explosive for this, for his typical brand of provocation and didn't go anywhere near it. Oh, wait, he went on Tucker Carlson (laughs) to launch an NFL Goodell conspiracy theory. Here's a bit of that interview. Your point earlier today, I agree with you completely. Why are they hassling Bob Kraft? We don't have enough problems in this country. I couldn't agree more. But I mean, Bob Kraft has also been at odds with some pretty powerful figures in American life, like the commissioner of the NFL. Oh, Tucker, you may be on the thing. They can't beat him on the field. They've had six championships in a row. And this misdemeanor suddenly comes up, an eighth-month investigation. I wouldn't put it past Roger Goodell to say, I can't beat him fair and square. So this is, I believe they have a word for it called entrapment. So we're going to lure him into the spa. And next thing you know, again, he's getting dragged. In by there were two totally amazing wow. things about that exchange. Wow, was right. One was Carlson just leading Portnoy to the conspiracy theory. Like, mm-hmm. no, no, I don't want to just talk about uh, prostitution. I just really want you to just go right to the conspiracy theory. But second, and you have to watch this uh, to really appreciate it, is that you know how Carlson has that performative frown whenever he's on one side of the interview box on Fox News? Yes, he's always frowning. Yes. He's During this, he's actually smiling. <laughs> like, yeah. This is one of the few times I've ever seen Tucker Carlson smile while a guest is talking. And I don't know if he just knows it's so ridiculous and this is just yeah. pure wackiness that's going to get picked up on Twitter. What do you think? That's called plausible deniability, right? That's him. That's him. Uh, th- that is the disconnect that is necessary when he's putting on this something that he knows to be a comedy routine. And listen, I mean, you can look at this as as you know just silliness, and it is. Um, but yeah, but it's. I mean, Tucker Carlson will be the first in line to distance himself from a from a conspiracy theory when it's gone too far. He's the first, the first to tisk tisk at Alex Jones or. I don't know who my Mike Cernovich or whoever else, but like, you know, this is this is this is the mindset where those things get started. He's presenting it on a news program. I mean, mm-hmm. an opinion program, but on a news channel. Um, and they love to blur that line as much as anybody else. And listen, I like them. I like a conspiracy theory as much as the next person. But to put to to to, to say that, that Kraft has run us run awry or whatever, gone, has, has angered very powerful people and then. List Roger Goodell is the only example. I mean, Roger <laughs> Roger Goodell can't get can't get video footage from a casino in Ohio when he wants to. You know, to think that he could somehow like have control over a Florida police department for the sake of 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 harming Bob Kraft. And by the way, I mean Bob Kraft. I mean, the, the, I think that the story coming out of this is that Bob Kraft has been remarkably lucky to have the most brilliant person in football in his employ, right? I mean, this is if if Bob Kraft had the power of had the power of Jerry Jones, I, I can't imagine that the Patriots would be in the same situation. And we'll assumably see from his looming suspension whether or not that's true. I mean, you can we can fact check that in the future. I don't want to overdo it, but the entertainment is fine. But don't act like you're not part of this like conspiracy industrial complex in two months when you have cause to be when you're just like throwing this kind of trash out there on TV. Smile does not get you off the hook. All right, David, no. let's do the notebook time very quickly. True Detective season three ended. Yeah. I was listening to something Chris Ryan uh, said on The Watch with Andy Greenwald. And if you haven't checked out Chris and uh, Jason Concepcion's, all the stuff they did about season three, which is amazing. And also I recommend Chris and Andy's recap at the end, end, which was also really interesting. Mm -hmm. Chris had this line at the end of the podcast where he said something to the effect of all the stuff we looked up on the internet this season wound up not mattering. I think that is the journalistic coda to every peak TV show. Yes. All the stuff yeah. we looked up on the internet didn't matter after all. That's that's like yeah. that's every that's every show. 
Yeah, we were talking about this after after we both watched it, and I think I texted you like the real joy were the things we Googled along the way, or that whatever, or the the ancient texts we Googled along the way. Was that was that your response? I mean, it's really incredible. I remember when True Detective season one came out. Uh, it was my favorite show. I mean, just full stop. I loved every bit of it, and I had a one of my good buddies. We shared an appreciation of just about everything: TV, movies, books. And I kept trying to get him to watch it, but he was working on Sunday nights or something. And then he finally watched it six months later and he was like, yeah, it was okay. And it took me a while going back and forth with him to realize that like 90% of my joy of that was like from, from that show was hanging out on Reddit and seeing what people were figuring out about the show or thinking they were figuring out about the show and just like deep diving into HP Lovecraft as I was watching it. And um, I think that there's a real, I think, that, I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think that, but I just, but it is, but it does leave, it does mean that every show is almost inherently disappointing at the end. I was listening this week, David, to Tina Brown's TBD podcast. She was in a, interviewing David Remnick, who replaced her as editor of The New Yorker. Tina hired Remnick uh, as a writer, and then he replaced her as editor of The New Yorker. And she was comparing the challenges that she faced and that Remnick faced when they became editor of The New Yorker. Listen to this small bit, which is vintage Tina. And your role was probably different from mine. Your role was to come in in 1992 and waken the thing up, which is an expensive thing to do. It was a politically tough thing to do. It was also so yeah. strange because, I mean, people like Joe Mitchell would suddenly float into my office wearing <laughs> a trilby hat like the ghost yeah. of Christmas past or something. And I would think, wait a minute, I thought that you were dead. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were dead. This is what I love about Tina, because Tina published bushels and bushels of brilliant long form journalism. But Tina does not have the excessively, ridiculously reverential to long form journalist gene. Tina Brown will not be appearing in the gang gray comments section, right? <laughs> Tina, Tina Brown and Wright Thompson are unlikely to have, you know, a glass of whiskey comparing uh, great pieces by Gary Smith. That's not going to happen. <laughs> and I love that about her. I just love that. I yeah. thought you were dead. Joe Mitchell, old Mr. Flood. She thought he was dead. Yeah, there's a lot of people for whom getting that chair at the New Yorker where like the first thing you would do is just to like schedule lunches with the Joe Mitchells of the world, <laughs> okay. right? Just right. So, like who can who do I get to talk to now? Can we you go know, to the Fulton Fish get to... Market together? Exactly. <laughs> All right. 2020 notes, David, quickly before we go. Uh, Politico's newsletter informs us that at least a half dozen of the declared Democratic candidates will be at South by Southwest next weekend. God help us all. South by oh Southwest as a political launch event. Um, what else do I have here for you? Joe Biden is still deciding whether he wants to be president. Just an update. Mm -hmm. uh, last Wednesday, Gromer Jeffers, reporter at the Dallas Morning News, had the scoop that Beto O'Rourke will not challenge John Cornyn for Senate, thereby making it look like Beto O'Rourke is going to run for president. My first reaction was, what a day for the long-form community, if mm. Beto O'Rourke. And, and then I immediately cut David, as I often do, to the headline, right? Now, you yeah. remember I suggested... When he finally lost to Ted Cruz, I suggested <laughs> Mo Beto Blues was kind of <laughs> yes. left right there on the table. So I've already got some some headlines for the Beto O'Rourke launch of the 2020 presidential campaign. Are you ready? I'm ready. It gets Beto. Beto, watch out. <laughs> A Beto tomorrow. Oh, no. Beto luck next time. Yes. Okay, that's good. Beto luck next time. And given the fact that he's coming into this race after a half dozen plus Democrats have already joined, better late than never. So um, anyway, but and by the way, that's not free. You know, if you if you are <laughs> Jay Fielden or Jake Silverstein or whomever, just just send the check to the press box. We we don't work for free. <laughs> no, we need new snacks. No, that 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 took at least two and a half minutes of my day. <laughs> um, we can talk about Hillary Clinton next week. Let's talk about Hillary Clinton next week. Okay. Because I want to play David Shoemaker guesses the celebrity profile headline. Oh, no. I, David, speaking of Tina Brown, was clearing out some uh, old stuff out of my office and found the January 1990 issue of Vanity Fair. This is the high Tina period. First of mm -hmm. all, the magazine cost $2.50. You can't buy a newspaper for $2.50 now. $2.50 <laughs> for a glossy magazine. And I've got Two items from the front of the book fanfare section for you, okay? 
One was a short item about, and you have to guess the headline. David, in this case, guesses the headline, which is usually a terrible <sighs> pun. Hint, mm-hmm. to, hint to David and all who are listening. Okay. Uh, the first item was about a 27-year-old Demi Moore's future being <laughs> ahead of her. A 27-year-old Demi Moore <sighs> and her future being ahead of her. Mm-hmm. That's all the information I That's get? That's all you get. This is, come on. Um, I mean, there's obviously like the more the merrier. I'm not sure that that really fits. It's <laughs> uh, a good one. Oh, oh, oh. Um, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> that would be kind of a maybe long, just the first of a half. Long, maybe just the first half. headline. Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> it was actually just more later, kind of basic, right? Okay, I like that. I thought "Gimme More" was also an obvious place to go there, especially sure. in that kind of Vanity Fair. We love the celebrities kind of way. One more for you, David. Michael Moore had just made Roger and Me. <laughs> we use so, the same puns. This is how right. I know. He just made Roger and Me, all right? <laughs> so an item about Michael Moore that touched on General Motors and his life story. An item that touched on General Motors and Michael Moore's life story. Oh, God. Um, I have no... Is this not an... Uh, God... Now I'm thinking of Flint, mm. uh, cars, cold. cold. Oh no, warmish, uh, warmish, cars, warmish. Um, auto. Mm. Mm. Uh, well, now my mind's going. And really his weird life places. story. And his life story. Autobiography. There we go. Oh really? Got All right. Autobiography. Oh man, David what do I Shoemaker. Get? What do I win? You're one in three. Congratulations, buddy. <laughs> That's the press box for this week. He's David Shoemaker. Chris Almeida does the research. Jim Cunningham is a producer. More lukewarm takes about the media next week. See you then, David. See you later, Brian. David. I thought you were dead. (laughs) Gone after one year. I don't think they were being dishonest or anything, but they certainly made it seem like a bigger deal than in my mind it really was. Mm Mm-hmm. Somebody once told me, Bryce Harper told Zayn, I want the...